Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Episode 121, the last episode, like several others before it, achieved an audience of more than one million people throughout the week. There's nothing on British television or on European television or on North American television that comes anything close to that kind of audience. So you are in a select band of the smartest people on the planet. If you're watching as well as listening on my Facebook page, then please press share now to confound Mr. Algorithm, who's forever lurking in the corridors. If you're watching on my YouTube channel, please subscribe if you are, or on RT's multiple YouTube channels. A big welcome to you if you are one of those back now on Instagram, on Twitch, on Telegram, on all these different uh, visual platforms. A very big welcome to you. But uh, if you are listening on radio, on uh, 105.5 in the uh, Washington, D.C. area, you'll be listening in crystal clarity on FM. And if you're listening on AM, coast to coast across the United States, again, a big welcome to you. It's a jam-packed show tonight. For obvious reasons, there's a lot happening in the world. Some of it sublime, some of it ridiculous. Let's start with the ridiculous. There's a fit and proper person test before you can take over a British or for that matter European football club and some pretty rum characters have passed that test. And just to make it clear, uh, that there's uh, nothing anti-Arab or anti-Muslim about what I'm going to say. I cannot understand how Roman Abramovich has been allowed to own Chelsea for all these years, not least because the British authorities don't seem keen to allow him even into the country to watch them. I don't know why American billionaires were allowed to take over my club, Manchester United, dumping shares this week before the Newcastle United takeover news uh, broke and everybody else's share price fell markedly. They dumped hundreds of millions of dollars worth of their own shares, still retaining overall control of the company, of course. The share price of Manchester United has fallen significantly. So the Glazers managed to sell just in time. A remarkable Coincidence. I don't know why other American billionaires are able to own a great working class northern English institution like Liverpool, 
football club. I was literally alone. I could not find anybody interested in the news last season that a member of the Saudi royal family had bought full control of Sheffield United Football Club in the English Premiership. So there's a whole lot of hypocrisy. These are not the only levels of hypocrisy involved in the hue and cry from liberal journalists and the commentariat about the Saudi royal family now buying for £305 million the great national institution of Newcastle United. There's a lot of hypocrisy because most of these uh, commentators have had nothing to say about the examples I've already given. And virtually all of them will be at the sports washing fiesta next year in Qatar when the World Cup is transferred there to the Middle East, to the Persian Gulf, where it's baking hot for the first time in history. And the attitudes of the countries in the Persian Gulf are not dissimilar to the attitudes of the Saudi Arabian dictatorship, although maybe by degree. And that degree may very well prove critical in the course of the debate that we're going to have this evening on this subject. The Saudi royal family is one thing, Prince Mohammed bin Salman quite another. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia has been found guilty by the whole of the international community, including their best friends in the United States, including from their best friend, Donald J. Trump, uh, to be a murderer, a mutilator, literally. Prince MBS, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, has been found by the United States government to have personally been involved in the murder of a journalist, a journalist of the Washington Post in their own consulate in Istanbul in Turkey. They didn't just lure him to the embassy. They didn't just murder him. They then literally sawed him into little pieces and refuse even now that they have admitted that he was murdered on their premises to say what they did with his remains. And the international community has fairly and squarely blamed the man who now owns Newcastle United for a crime heinous in the extreme. It's not the only crime, of course, of which he's guilty. He's guilty of far bigger crimes in Syria, in Yemen, against his own people, against even his own relatives, whom he hanged upside down in a seven-star hotel until the money fell out of their pockets and he filched it all in the name of an anti-corruption drive, of course. I would argue that this puts MBS 
in a different league, if you'll forgive the pun, from all of the others that have strangely passed the fit and proper person test to own a British football club. Now, I didn't oppose this takeover because of the hypocrisy involved. After all, if MBS is so bad, why are we selling him weapons? If MBS is so bad, why are we sending military officers to help him prosecute his war against the people next door in Yemen? If MBS is so bad, how come he's allowed to invest in all kinds of other, some of them very surprising, enterprises in Britain, in America, and across Europe? And if a Saudi royal can own Sheffield United without anyone saying a word against it, how can you stop the people of Newcastle from breaking free of their own local autocrat, uh, the owner that has just been bought out? The people of Newcastle have suffered a lot under the previous ownership of the football club. But they are now owned uh, by people who are exponentially more wealthy than the owners of any football club in the world. The owners of Manchester City, from the tyrannical United Arab Emirates, are worth 22 billion, a lot of money in anybody's money anybody's language. But the people who've now bought Newcastle United are worth 700 billion pounds. By a long stretch, Newcastle United are now richer than all the other football teams in the world put together, which is going to, well, alter the course. Some might say distort the course of football, the working class game that we exported to the world very considerably indeed. So there are many aspects to this. And we're asking in a poll, it's already out there, should countries, should foreign entities be allowed to buy football clubs at all? My answer is no because football is more than a business. As we discovered during the lockdown, football is an essential part of national life, not just in our country here in Britain, but in many countries around the world. If war is too important to be left to generals, then football is too important to be left to billionaire owners thousands of miles away, many of whom are not even sure of the shape of the ball the people they employ are kicking. There'll be much debate on this in the course of the next three hours. We'll be talking to a knight of the realm and a Nobel Prize winner. It's not often that a show can say that. Professor Sir John Curtis is the Dean of Cephologists, the Prince 
of polls. Uh, there's nothing about the movements of public opinion uh, that he does not study and form a very considered scientifically calibrated view about. Having said that, I have frequently doubted if he was right in his calibration of the level of support for the breakup of the United Kingdom. As it happens, the polls have begun to turn in favor of my side of the argument. And as I said earlier in Jim Davidson's immortal words, you look down and the audience begins to disappear over the years, row by row. 326 people marched in the city of Glasgow on Saturday in what was billed as the capital letters big march for Scottish independence, 326. Only a couple of years ago, these campaigners were claiming six-figure sums, six-figure numbers for the attendance at their events. We'll hear what Sir John thinks about the prospects for Scottish separatism. We'll be talking to RT's own, the awesome Afsan Rotansi, on the Pandora's box that we first lifted last weekend. You'll remember it was just an hour or so before we came on air that the news dropped across the world about a new Pandora's box after the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, along came the Pandora's box. Now, there were a number of things that were suspicious automatically about the Pandora's box. Although 300 politicians were fingered, all of them deservedly, and I hope they all go to hell as a result, but they were 300 politicians from a certain part of the world or a certain relationship uh, to the United States and the power in the Western world. No American politicians or businessmen were found in the Pandora's box, a remarkable state of affairs, you might say. And very few British politicians or businessmen were found in the Pandora's box either, but one in particular was. Tony Blair, uh, the former Middle East peace envoy, to his amazement, his total surprise, turned out to have purchased a company offshore from an unknown party who turned out to be uh, the now deceased former Prime Minister of Bahrain. Neither the Prime Minister of Bahrain nor Mr. Blair knew that they were buying and selling to and from each other. And Mr. Blair was then the proud owner of a multi-million pound property in the Marleybone Road on which he avoided 312,000 pounds in British taxation. That's the British taxation that pays, amongst other things, for the Metropolitan Police. That's the Metropolitan Police who, for the last 15 years nearly, have been paying every penny of the personal protection of the very same Tony 
Blair, who's guarded round the clock by officers of the Metropolitan Police, paid for by the taxpayer, whom the Blairs have just entirely legally, of course, cheated out of £312,000. Angry? Moi? And we'll be talking uh, about Donald Trump. And somebody called Keir Starmer. Special K, he called himself. Special Agent K, maybe. Although he actually didn't say that, or he did say it, but he didn't mean it. It was a joke, and then it wasn't a joke. The mask has well and truly slipped off the face of Sir Keir Starmer. And the opinion polls prove it. And if I've got the chance, I'll ask Professor Sir John Curtis about that. And not least, the noble art of giving out Nobel Prizes. Satire died, of course, when Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. It died again, if you can die twice, when Barack Obama was given the award and given it before he'd even begun work as the United States president. I'm not sure who'll get the Nobel Peace Prize next. Maybe the owner of Newcastle United. Who knows? Stranger things have happened, but we will be talking to a real pucker Nobel Prize winner for chemistry. And I understand everything about his work, but I'll ask him to explain it to you in layman's terms. Layman's terms, layperson's terms, for the benefit of British Airways. Let me read you the poll. Should countries stroke foreign entities be allowed to buy football clubs? A, yes, B, no, C, depends which country. Get voting now on my Twitter feed, on my Instagram, on my YouTube, and on my Telegram channel. Afshan Ratansi is uh, the commentator extraordinary. He produces the best television show, and presents it, I should say, uh, called Going Underground on RTUK. It is, uh, I think, shown also worldwide. It is easily the best program of its kind on terrestrial television. If you don't catch it regularly, you really should. Uh, Afshan uh, looked deeply into the Pandora's box, uh, more deeply than I have been able to do. I had intended to do it this week. So, Afshan, uh, my apologies for the uh, less than forensic nature of my questions, because I'm not any better informed than I was last week about it. But the one thing that strikes you is that uh, whilst valuable, uh, the leaks uh, expose some really rum characters, and already you see in the Czech Republic some uh, knock-on effects uh, of, the, uh, of the disclosures. They were rather carefully targeted, the disclosures. Um, the, there were lots of Russian names in there, but no Americans. And the only British one was uh, Tony Blair and Cherie Blair, which is of interest to me in itself. 
did you feel that, that it was uh, clearly politically directed somehow, this leak? Great show, George. Thanks for uh, inviting me back on. Yeah, and, and perhaps that's why I didn't uh, uh, pique your interest uh, quite as much as it should. I think uh, I think jujitsu, although I don't play it, um, is uh, is important here because the provenance of these leaks uh, should not mean that we should ignore what's in them. But it's very important to know what the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists widely uh, distributed around the state-mandated BBC in this country and, of course, in uh, so-called mainstream media in the United States, what the significance is. Uh, the people that bankroll the ICIJ are linked to intelligence services. And uh, as we both know, the greatest uh, purveyor of leaked information for the uh, ordinary man and woman on the street who wants to know about the military industrial complex and what is done in their name is being tortured in prison down the road from uh, where we're both uh, from where we're both talking to each other and uh, the bankroller of these leaks or at least the ICIJ is a man who stopped people being able to give money to WikiLeaks to Julian Assange's WikiLeaks he's uh, Pierre Omidyar who uh, made a lot of money out of PayPal. Uh, we use that to buy and sell on the internet. Now, why, why is it a man associated with preventing Julian Assange's WikiLeaks organization from financing itself from five pound, 10 pound donations should now want freedom of information? So that should immediately make us suspicious. But as you say, just because it is linked to these uh, organizations, it's linked to uh, certain journalists who uh, have been very interested in uh, de facto supporting wars in Syria and uh, uh, who knows uh, what other wars NATO wants to get involved in. Yet we have names like Blair, we have names like NATO ally, the uh, outgoing now uh, Czech leader. Um, very interesting that just because uh, these leaks come from this kind of source, uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore them, although I have to say they haven't leaked the database. So we have to rely on the ICIJ for what information is in them. But as you say, uh, the pictures uh, that emblazoned newspapers all around the world were not of um, any American businessmen or businesswomen. They were of uh, Vladimir Putin. Well, actually, corruption. his picture was in the masthead uh, above the headline of every single story, even though he actually isn't in it. And what's interesting is, and I was on the BBC Question Time programme here, uh, they do this debate programme, which is quite uh, important, by, seen by, or was at least uh, over a number of years when David Dimbleby was hosting it, sort of civic society programme for our international viewers and listeners. And I mentioned the Russian that was involved in funding Boris Johnson's party, and there was just silence, bemused silence. And of course, as you say, uh, Vladimir Putin is pictured over all these leaks. In fact, the people that are named in these leaks, some of them are wanted in Russia uh, because the authorities in Russia believe they've uh, stolen money that uh, we can see is the uh, legacy of those great privatization years, which saw the uh, life expectancy of Russians reduce when privatization uh, created the, one of the most corrupt governments on earth, the Yeltsin government in Russia. Exactly so. Uh, they hate Putin not for any bad thing that he does. Uh, they hate him because he's cracking down on these very oligarchs, most of whom are living in London. 
and living a very high life in London, buying property, keeping property prices up in London. And because, of course, he opposes Western foreign policy in places like Syria. Um, why do you think, though, that they fingered, if you'll forgive the phrase, uh, Tony Blair? Ha have they fallen out with him? Oh, no. Poor Tony Blair. I mean, he must have been really upset about it. Um, that, that is interesting. And why Sebastian Piñera in Chile? Why, you know, some of these people don't necessarily make sense. I think one innocent explanation, because if people can watch my Going Underground show uh, that we did the other day, where we actually got someone from the ICIJ, normally they don't want to speak because they're so associated with uh, the uh, NATO uh, NATO entities that are out there always saying they're doing good journalism. But when you look into it a bit more, you see, I don't know, the famous the BBC had to apologize recently for a prize winning investigation to a chemical attack in Syria. You know, later on, it turns out not not the case. But if you look at our interview with the uh, general, um, the managing editor of the ICIJ, he seemed a pretty nice guy, actually, Fergus Shield. He was just a, a journalist. You know, he said, I, I don't get Pierre or Midio are or any of these secret financiers, not so secret, but you know, they don't, they don't tell us what to do. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, good can come out of bad, perhaps. Is that, is that the idea? No matter how much uh, you can trace links to US aid and these so-called CIA cutouts, they are producing information. And we, we love information. I'm we sure do. you're going to be just as I at Going Underground, you at Moats and at your exactly. show Sputnik are going to go, leak us the database. We want to know about rich oligarchs. Exactly. Who are, um, exactly. That, that, going that, that's, to public libraries and the post office and, and the police service and the it's entirely uh, my point of view on it. Even if it was politically directed, even if it was funded uh, by obscure, uh, maybe even uh, unpleasant uh, uh, sources, whatever its provenance, if it unmasked malfeasance or at least morally reprehensible behavior by rich and powerful people wherever they are, I'm for it. Now, on the subject of journalism and the greatest uh, world historic journalist, uh, Julian Assange, facing a deportation to the United States later this month, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee has just uh, recognized the importance uh, of uh, journalism in exposing uh, uh, bad things. Um, how did you feel about that? I felt it was, again, a piece of hypocrisy. Uh, they haven't raised their voice for the release of Julian Assange, but let's give them a Nobel Prize for uncovering uh, malpractice in, in places like Russia. I mean, no one from the Nobel, Nobel Prize, Peace Prize Committee, uh, no one from the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists, I, maybe you, uh, we don't have the right to shine the shoes of Julian Assange being tortured uh, down the road uh, here at Belmar Supermax uh, prison. It was absolutely clear that the Nobel uh, Peace Prize Committee, and let's, let's face it, we both know the Nobel Peace Prize is forever associated with Henry Kissinger and uh, the mass murder of people in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, let alone Obama and his drone strikes that have killed uh, so many people and, and the wars in effect then. 
uh, displaced, wounded or killed tens of millions of people in, in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and so forth. Um, they gave it to a guy who's associated with Yabloko, which is uh, a party in, the United, in Russia associated with the telling Putin, get out of Syria. In other words, associated with the don't help President Assad fight ISIS, Daesh and Al-Qaeda. Uh, groups that want to do us harm here in London, let alone do harm in uh, uh, what you're on FM radio in Washington, D.C., yeah. do untold harm to Americans. So uh, the Nobel Peace Prize was given to a journalist associated with a party that de facto uh, wanted uh, a victory for al-Qaeda and ISIS-Daesh. So yet again, we have a Stockholm Nobel Prize Committee rewarding, uh, well, what many around the world see as... Uh, uh, atrocities that are we can't even kind of speak to the pain that ISIS, Daesh, and, and Al Qaeda and indeed, groups like that indeed, cause around. Satar, Satar dies uh, all over again. Uh, just finally, Afshan, um, I'm getting very nervous. You must be, as the uh, date looms uh, when uh, Julian's fate uh, will be decided. Uh, we talk. Indeed, I was talking earlier uh, about the heinous um, murder and, and mutilation uh, of one journalist, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, in the consulate in Turkey. But actually, the same people who, the same liberals who uh, are ready to denounce that are, remain silent on the fate that might await Julian Assange, even a British judge said she could not recommend his extradition to the US because the likelihood of him staying alive there was uh, so slim. Uh, what's your reading, uh, given all that's happened since the American appeal went in, the discrediting of the central witness uh, in the case against Julian, uh, for example, now arrest of that, uh, central witness. Do you feel that the tide has turned in favor of a victory for Julian? And what would that look like? What would that mean if Julian were to be freed from prison in October 2021? Well, he would only be freed uh, presumably on bail because there's, a, there's another court date in December in this tortuous, literally torturous uh, legal process. But of course, we now have uh, mainstream media like Yahoo, although in Britain it wasn't uh, at all reported, maybe the Somali service of the BBC chose to report it, that there were gun battles and so on foreseen uh, with British authorities to try and uh, stop Julian Assange escaping uh, the clutches of United States authorities. I hope that the lawyers uh, for Julian Assange on October the 28th will be saying, uh, forget the judgment that uh, his life uh, would be in danger if he was extradited for a, a possible 175-year sentence in a Virginia uh, supermax prison. Forget, forget that that's the reason he, he should not be allowed to go to the United States. He should not be allowed to go to the United States because from 30 unofficial sources, let alone what was previously shown by the Grey Zone, uh, that outlet, we know now that uh, apparently uh, they were going to kidnap him, they were going to use helicopters to take down passenger planes at Heathrow Airport, I don't know which airport, they were going to have gun battles in Knightsbridge. 
I mean, the kind of uh, illegality conceived of by the CIA with Mike Pompeo calling WikiLeaks a uh, non-state hostile intelligence service, it's clear now that none of this, <laughs> none of this case, let alone, um, let alone the spying on the lawyers and so on, uh, makes this case credible at all. And as for the silence, you know, Noam Chomsky famously always talks about us not having conspiratorial views about people in newsrooms or in uh, newspapers, uh, realizing a structural reason why people uh, obey their editors, their senior managers, and so on, because of structural, uh, the idea of the occupation of being a journalist. But I mean, you know, it, George, it must have surprised even you that uh, at least there were a few reports in the US, but in Britain, complete silence, even amongst uh, partner organizations of WikiLeaks previously, like The Guardian, very, very little, no headline news that uh, they were getting British authorities to think of, of uh, gun battles in the streets of London to uh, kidnap Julian Assange or assassinate him. Unbelievable. Afshan Ratansi, host of Going Underground on RT. Thanks for joining us on Thank the you. mother of all talk shows. I'll let you get back to Pandora's box. Professor Sir John Curtis, as I said, is the Prince of Poles. He is the Dean of Cephologists, and we're always very, very happy to see him on the mother of all talk shows. Professor, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, it's a jam-packed set of polling numbers uh, that we can crunch, isn't it? Uh, we'll turn to the Scottish in a minute, but I wanted your uh, expert view on how the party conference season went for the, for the leaders of the big British parties. There was no real bounce for anybody. It looked that way to me, at least. No, that so far at least seems the picture. Obviously, we could argue you might need another week before we really know what the fallout is. But certainly, the polls that we've had during the course of the conference season haven't shown a great deal of difference. That does mean that basically the Conservatives are still around five points ahead of Labour, 40 for the Conservatives, around 35 for Labour. The Liberal Democrats still bumping around slightly higher than they were. They're kind of running at around the 9% mark, but only just ahead of the Greens um, and what's left of uh, the Brexit Party, now known as Reforming UK, probably just around three or four points. But it's not obvious any of that's moved. Now, one thing one should bear in mind at this point, I mean, you might say, oh, Conservatives five points ahead, so Boris is still in a comfortable position. Well, actually, he isn't, um, because uh, a five-point lead, given the current electoral geography, probably only about a 50% chance of a Conservative majority. And one of the things we're going to have to remember uh, as we look forward to the next UK general election, which... Sure, isn't due until 2024, but might happen in 2023, is that the Conservatives don't have any friends left inside the House of Commons. And that unless the Conservatives get an overall majority or something very close to it, then Boris Johnson will probably be out on his ear. One suspects that not even the DUP would be willing to uh, sustain a minority Conservative administration in the future. So although the task facing the Labour Party to get an overall majority is an enormous one. They have to be about 12 points ahead. Once the Conservative lead falls behind five points, the Conservatives may themselves no longer have an overall majority, and uh, they may well find that they can form an administration, albeit 
at a price that we might come on to, even though they have many fewer seats than the Conservatives, because frankly, the Liberal Democrats, they don't want to keep the Conservatives in power, the SNP, they don't want to keep the Conservatives in power, and as I've already said, the DUP probably also don't want to keep the Conservatives in power. So the next election is going to be a very unbalanced contest, um, and while the poll numbers look good for the Conservatives, they actually have to be very good for the Conservatives for them to be sure of winning another overall majority. What does a very good look like, uh, Professor? I mean, you, you've used the 5% number, I know why. Uh, the latest poll is 5%, but they yeah. have been as much as 9%. At what point does 5%, 50% chance of an overall majority, become a more or less stuck-on overall yeah, majority? Once you, get, once you get to about seven points or so, then the Conservatives are almost bound to win an overall majority unless something uh, fairly dramatic happens. Of course, I think one thing one should say, George, I mean, it's kind of started this conversation by saying, well... The party conference season hasn't made much difference. True. One thing that may have made a difference, but it's early days yet, is uh, the spike in uh, gas prices, um, the shortages in the shops, the petrol shortage. Uh, certainly intriguingly, one poll, and I think one should emphasize at this stage, it's only one poll uh, from YouGov finds that uh, the Conservatives at the moment at least are no more likely be trusted on handling the economy than are the Labour Party. Now, if that were something that to were persist, then the Labour Party might be beginning to begin to get a look in on, you know, one of the things that so far, uh, despite the fact that people are more likely to think that Sir Keir Starmer might perhaps look like a Prime Minister than Jeremy Corbyn, though they still have been less likely to think that Sir Keir Starmer would do a better job than Boris Johnson. Um, but the Labour Party also not really convincing people they could run the economy any more effectively. If the headwinds on the economy, uh, the kind of headwinds that people are beginning to notice in their everyday lives, if they are to continue and the people don't get convinced that the Conservatives are capable of handling them, then frankly that might end up causing the Conservatives uh, much more difficulty than many, many deaths, indeed many people's views, far too many deaths over coronavirus in the previous 18 months never really did. There's always the possibility of changing jockey uh, mid-race, of course. Conservatives are quite ruthless uh, in that, Labour less so, at least until recent times. Uh, the leader, Starmer, and the leader, Johnson, uh, might become, in, in the case of Starmer, it's already the case, I think, might become less popular than their party, which is usually a coup, uh, a cue for a coup. Sure. I mean, at the moment, I mean, you know, the, the Boris Johnson's relationship with, with his party is, uh, is somewhat volatile. At the moment, nobody feel, feels able to second-guess him. He seems to be dominant. Of course, it was a few months ago during the height of the coronavirus pandemic that people were saying that Boris Johnson wasn't enjoying the job. Uh, maybe he might go. Now, you know, the mood music at present has completely changed. Um, but, I mean, there is no doubt that I think, you know, Boris Johnson's uh, leadership of, of his party is predicated on his poll lead. He's got his poll lead at the moment, uh, he, and therefore he's got his party, party behind him. Um, and I think certainly, you know, one of the things, again, the party conference season reminded, I mean, Whatever one thinks about the arguments of either Sakir Starmer or Boris Johnson, 
Boris Johnson at the end of the day has two crucial attributes. One, he's got charisma. And two, he knows how to construct a narrative and to sell it. So, you know, we've got this narrative for good or ill, which is, yeah, sure, there are difficulties now about aspects of our economy. But this is the transition from Brexit. And they were trying to wean big business off uh, being too reliant on immigration. And when this works, uh, everybody's wages will go up. And as a result, we'll all be much better off. And, you know, it's a very clever narrative. Uh, so in a sense, it's getting Brexit done. It's getting Brexit finished. Um, Sir Keir Starmer, very thoughtful speech, a rather long speech. He tried to tell people about himself with a degree of success. He was particularly selling not only his own background, he's trying to persuade us that he had at least a, a skilled working class background that perhaps many people could understand. Also quite intriguingly, selling the fact that he was a, a criminal lawyer and was responsible for prosecuting people to say, I'm tough on crime, clearly trying to imitate Tony Blair here. Um, and then, you know, kind of said, well, you know, here are four words that sum me up. And it was work and care and security. One other I frankly still can't remember. <laughs> but what was missing? Well, what was missing was the catchphrase, the phrase that I enabled to capsulate for people in a few words, what was Sakir Starmer's about? And until he can think of the catchphrase in order to encapsulate his ideas, then I think, frankly, he's still going to be struggling. But, you know, we'll see. He was trying. It was an interesting speech, but on its own, certainly wasn't sufficient. Now, turning to Scotland, Sir John, um, you know where I stand uh, uh, on it, but I, in the course of this interview, uh, I shall be entirely dispassionate, uh, except in this regard. Uh, as a keen observer of, uh, of nationalism's ups and downs, uh, I was active in politics when Winnie Ewing uh, broke through for the first time uh, in the 1960s. This looks like a down period to me and one in which infighting and stresses and strains inside the nationalist movement uh, looks likely to get more virulent still. How does it look to you? Well, you're right, there is a degree of uh, dissension within the nationalist movement. But it's one, of course, that's essentially being articulated by Alex Salmond and the Alba Party. But in the end, um, the Alba Party didn't make any breakthrough last May. They've probably only got about 2 or 3% support. Now, you know, they do reflect the views of a section of society in Scotland um, that is impatient about the fact that Nicola Sturgeon hasn't called the referendum already um, and feel that um, uh, they should be pushing the independence button sooner rather than later. I have to say to you that my reading of public opinion in Scotland, or sorry, you know, here crucially, the, my reading of those people who would vote yes in an independence referendum, which is roughly half of Scotland, most of whom voted for the SNP or some of them for the Greens on, on the list vote, is that actually they're inclined to be relatively patient. Virtually all of them want a referendum at some point during the course of the next five years. But quite a few of them are saying, well, you know, as long as it's sometime within the next five years, that's fine. It doesn't certainly have to be this year, probably doesn't even have to be next year. And I think to that extent, at least, Nicola Sturgeon's probably got quite a lot of leeway. 
And it's frankly leeway that she needs because where are the polls at the moment? Probably about 51% for no, 49% for yes. Therefore, going early is not in Nicola Sturgeon's interest because a referendum would be an enormous gamble. It's also, by the way, not in Boris Johnson's interest because an, an early referendum would be an enormous gamble for him because, frankly, we do not know what the outcome of an independence referendum would be if it was held relatively soon. And, of course, the truth is that an awful lot have cha has changed since 2014. And both sides, both nationalists and unionists, have an awful lot of homework to do to work out what their arguments are going to be for and against independence in a world that's frankly been changed by Brexit. Brexit has certainly changed the character of support for independence. One of the ironies of the 2014 referendum is that although we spent hours arguing about whether or not an independent Scotland could be a continuing member of the European Union, attitudes towards the EU proved to be utterly unrelated to whether or not people vote for independence. Those days are over. As a consequence of Brexit, supporters of uh, people who want to be inside the European Union, it's now very clearly a majority who want independence, uh, but leave voters in contrast, support for independence has fallen away. So that Brexit and independence have now become intertwined, but Brexit has changed the arguments. You know, there's going to be an argument about what do you do about the single market border, given that an independent Scotland would want to rejoin the European Union. What do we what do we do about that? Um, but equally, how do unionists argue that it's better for Scotland to be in a relatively small single market, which is the United Kingdom, as opposed to being in a much bigger, bigger single market, which is the European Union? So there are, we are now looking at a very different choice that the Scottish voters face. I think it's a major geostrategic choice, but it's one that requires both sides to think through their arguments once more, because the arguments that they used in 2014, for the most part, have been overtaken by events, not least the change in position on oil, though of course the price fall has gone back up, but nobody wants to use oil anymore, not even the SNP wants to use oil. So we're talking about what do we do in a world that's trying to deal with climate change? And what do we do in a world that's now been changed by Brexit? That requires both sides to rethink their arguments. And we've not really had that argument yet. And therefore, we don't really know what voters will make of it. Now, when you give these numbers, uh, knife edge numbers, 5149, uh, does that exclude uh, don't knows? And if it yeah, does, yeah, sure. that needs that needs to say the don't knows. But to be honest, there aren't that many don't knows. Most no, but, but it is true, isn't it, Professor, so, that in 2014 the don't knows broke very heavily uh, for no for remaining in the uh, in the United Kingdom uh, 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 by, sure some, by some factor. I'm not sure that's true, George. I mean, at the end of the day, the story of the 2014 referendum is that although the SI didn't win the referendum, they certainly won the campaign. I mean, probably if the referendum ballot had been held back in October uh, 2013, when the ballot was agreed, uh, it might have been a two to one vote for staying inside the UK. And in the end, it ended up 55-45. So I'm sure I'm actually, I'm not sure you're right. And the, end, you know, the truth is, um, that most people you know, had a pretty clear view 
The polls slightly overestimated uh, the, the vote for yes uh, in the end, but you know, polls were saying about 53, 47. We only ever had one or two polls that ever had yes ahead. It always looked pretty clear that yes, we're going to win, and yes, indeed, did. Sorry, that no, we're going to win, in the end, no, indeed, do, we did win. I don't want to dwell on the 2014, because as you say, uh, a lot has changed, but yeah. uh, it, it was the biggest turnout there has ever been. Absolutely. Uh, in, Absolutely. A, in a vote in Scotland. It was on the date uh, with the question, with the franchise, yep. picked by the separatist side, and they still lost by 10 clear points. Uh, but you really think it's gotten closer? You see, I think it's, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. it's oh, gotten yes. wider, I think. And, and, and George, it's Brexit what's changed it, all right? Virtually all of the increase in support for independence is accounted for by the fact that some of the, I mean, the, the, there are some people who've switched from yes to no. So there are some people who voted leave and around one in three of those people who voted yes in 2014 voted in favor of leaving the European Union. But people who voted no and leave are considerably outnumbered by about two to one by people who voted no and remain. And some of them have switched to have switched to yes, and because they are much more numerous, it was almost inevitable in the long run that the pursuit of Brexit was going to undermine support for the union, and that is what has happened. Um, support for basically, I can account for virtually all the increase in support for independence, which basically transpired in 2019 as we were arguing about whether or not. Brexit should be implemented or not, basically all of it can be accounted for by the rise in support for independence amongst uh, Remain voters. And, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I know, George, you're, you know, you're, you're a backer of Brexit, but the, the truth is uh, anybody who wishes Scotland to remain inside the union who pursued Brexit simply has to recognise that support for Scotland remaining inside the, the United Kingdom has been a piece of collateral damage for that cause, which, you know, during the referendum campaign, if it ever happens, is something that the unionist side will have to try to do its best to repair. All of this, of course, may be entirely academic because uh, the, in the course of this parliament, uh, this prime minister is not going to permit uh, an, another referendum the prospects of an illegal referendum or persuading the courts uh, to allow a referendum notwithstanding the opposition of the government took a setback, didn't they, this week past uh, when uh, ultra virus uh, was a phrase suddenly remembered again. Uh, yeah. The Supreme Court deciding that the Scottish government was doing things uh, that it had no power to do. Yeah, you're quite right. There was a Supreme Court case this day that um, uh, struck down a couple of bills that actually were passed unanimously by the Scottish um, Parliament, or at least it, 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 it struck down certain provisions of those bills. In particular, what upset the Supreme Court were some clauses that said that in future, acts of Parliament should be interpreted in such a way that were consistent with the legislation that was passed by Holyrood. And perhaps it wasn't a great surprise that the Supreme Court said, no, that definitely uh, breaks the uh, terms of the Scotland Act. Uh
deserves the right to, uh, sorry, the, the UK Parliament, the right to legislate in um, devolved matters, and therefore you cannot uh, do this. Now, uh, I think what's also true, if the Scottish Parliament were uh, to attempt to uh, implement a referendum of the kind that was in 2014, then again, I think almost undoubtedly that would be ruled as ultra-virus. But the interesting question is what would happen if the Scottish Parliament come up with something different? And way back in the days of the minority administration of 2007 to 2011, they came up with the idea of asking a referendum which said, do you think that the Scottish government should enter into negotiations with the UK government with a view to Scotland becoming independent. And shall we say, when two or three public lawyers were gathered together to debate as to whether or not this would be ultra-virus, we got five or six different opinions. And the truth is, we don't know. I think most public lawyers think probably the court would strike it down, but it probably isn't as clear a... A clear and obvious error, I think he was uh, about to say. Now, should countries foreign entities be allowed to buy football clubs? Yes, 26%, quite high actually. No, 58%, and see, it depends which country, 16%. So you can vote on Twitter, on YouTube, and on Telegram. Now, Dr. Anas Al-Takriti is an old uh, friend of mine. Uh, we don't see eye to eye on everything. I wonder if we'll see eye to eye on the Saudi Arabian purchase of Newcastle United. Let's find out. Dr. Anas, very nice to see you again. Um, Hello, George. Where it's do been a while. You, yes. Where do you stand on the Saudi takeover? Uh, well, firstly, I'm, uh, I'm pleased for the Newcastle United fans who uh, have gotten rid of uh, Mike Ashley um, after, after years of campaigning for his riddance. Um, but at the same time, it actually breaks my heart that almost uh, to the day on the third anniversary of the chopping up of the, uh, the uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi um, at the orders of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, this comes through. And, um, you know, it's something that uh, I, 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 I do not wish to burden any Newcastle United fan with. But the, uh, the uh, where, where, you know, the, the, the sale, the en masse sale of uh, virtually every single industry virtually uh, to, um, to regimes as horrid and as uh, terrible as the Saudi uh, one is, uh, is something that, that we need to actually sit up and take notice of, whether it be our high streets, whether it be our shopping malls, whether it be our industry, whether it be, um, you know, the entertainment business, whether it be WWE, uh, you know, the worldwide wrestling, whether it be boxing, whether it be concerts. And obviously now we have uh, what is in the life of um, every uh, every Brit, you know, the crown jewels, the football clubs, the stadia, you know, we have... Uh, in North London, the Emirates Stadium. We have we have in Eastern Manchester the Etihad uh, Stadium, and uh, and we have clubs that are owned by 
probably private funds, but um, which are chaired by the likes of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So it's uh, it's something that um, that actually breaks my heart uh, because of the time of it and because of the manner of it. Uh, there's no private uh, involved, is there, in the Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund? Uh, Saudi Arabia is controlled by MBS, and therefore Saudi's Sovereign Wealth Fund is controlled ipso facto uh, by him. Uh, he might even try to uh, name the stadium uh, after himself. It doesn't have uh, a sponsor like the Emirates uh, and so on. But um, before we come back to Newcastle, let's talk about the others. Uh, the UAE, uh, I read today, uh, was tapping your telephone and your sister's telephone. The UAE is a brutal, uh, uh, tyrannical uh, government. But nobody ever talks about them uh, owning Manchester City in the way that they are talking about the Saudis owning uh, uh, Newcastle United. Why this double standard, do you think? Um, well, I, I can only guess, uh, but um, obviously what's at stake is a relationship that uh, involves jobs, involves contracts to the tunes of tens, probably hundreds of, 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 uh, of billions. We're talking about very powerful lobbies, George. I'm pretty sure that you know of this. Uh, there are people who are in the pay of uh, some of these regimes. Obviously, one of the most prominent of those is, is Tony Blair and uh, who work as advisors and um, who work for these uh, uh, public funds uh, or private funds even as, uh, as consultants and the like. And they are paid, uh, you know, bucket loads of, of money, money that none of us, I, I'm, I'm going to presume, none of uh, our, uh, your listeners today uh, can even fathom or imagine uh, having, having uh, within their possession. So uh, the, the fact of the matter is that Regardless of human rights, regardless of democracy, regardless of equality, regardless of tolerance, leave aside all of that. All of those are just, they're just buzzwords that unfortunately our politicians uh, just, um, it rolls off their tongues just, you know, but it actually has no resonance in reality because once it comes to it, money, um, wealth, profit making is far, far more important than any of that. And regardless of how horrid, how the entire world was shocked at not only the way, but the form and manner and brazen, and, and brazen uh, format of how Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated in the Saudi embassy or Saudi consulate in, in Istanbul in 20, uh, 2017, 2018, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it now is seemingly is a distant memory and we're more than willing, more than happy to invite uh, tens, probably hundreds of billions uh, into uh, the country via Newcastle United Football Club, uh, but uh, which will be uh, used in order to what the term is, sport wash. Uh, the record of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi regime. It's something that is uh, something that I, I, I regard as quite shameful and quite disgraceful. And once again, I don't wish to burden this to any Newcastle United, long-suffering Newcastle United fan, but it's something that it's, is, must rest quite heavily on our shoulders. Yes, I mean, it was the football authorities and then ultimately the British government that allowed this to go through. And you can see why, uh, not just for the reasons you mentioned very ably, uh, but uh, the, the, these people, after they leave office, 
are up to their necks in the filthy lucre uh, generated in these places. You mentioned Tony Blair. Mrs. Blair, it turns out, is the legal representative of the company that makes uh, the uh, spyware that is uh, probably now listening into this conversation uh, and was listening into your own uh, telephone. But when you think about it, isn't this the bottom line? If we, if, if Bin Salman's so bad, why is the British government selling weapons to him? Uh, why are we giving him military, political, diplomatic assistance and cover uh, of all kinds? If he's so bad, why is he allowed to invest in Hollywood, in Disney, in, in, in media, even in some media that most people would think at a glance was scarcely the kind of media that he'd be involved in. Uh, so it's not fair, is it, to put the blame, the responsibility of all of this on Newcastle United? Oh, I absolutely agree. Absolutely. And uh, I think that we uh, long sold, uh, sold down. I think that uh, it's been now, what years, probably 10, 15 years since we, uh, we, we went down this very, very slippery, slippery slope, whereby industry, entertainment, media um, is up for sale. And, um, and now we're, uh, you know, up uh, to, to our necks. Um, in, um, in quite filthy and quite um, um, unspeakable deals and uh, kinds of trade that, uh, in all honesty, um, if under the, uh, the, uh, the glory of, uh, of, of sunlight, um, wouldn't be accepted by any sane human being. But it just goes to show, uh, George, and I think that this is something that will come uh, to uh, bite us quite hard. And I talk here about ourselves, me, you, everyone, uh, everyone listening today, uh, unless we decide absolutely where we stand on issues that are of essential morality and efficacy, where do we stand on human life? Where do we stand on corruption? Where do we stand on, on, on democracy or dictatorships? Where do we stand on violence? Where do we stand on all of these things? Unless we are absolutely unequivocally and unconditionally clear as to where we stand, we're almost always going to be up for sale. Everything, including ourselves. So, um, so yes, you're absolutely right. It's unfair to now pile in on Newcastle United and their long-suffering uh, supporters uh, when actually uh, parts of government, one could even argue, have been effectively sold to lobby groups and interest groups that represent the likes of the Saudi regime, the UAE regime, and others uh, that have uh, mega billions. So it's, uh, it's something that uh, we need to really address quite seriously, look ourselves in the mirror. And uh, when we then talk down to others, talking to them, trying to preach to them mm. about democracy, human rights, and, uh, and equality, I, I, you know, that would uh, become quite a, a difficult conversation to have. Dr. Marx, uh, of course, predicted that uh, in this period of capitalism, all that is sacred will be profaned. All that is solid will melt into air. It was remarkably prescient. Uh, last words uh, from you, doctor. Um, is MBS solid in the saddle in Saudi Arabia? One recalls the mass arrests of 
uh, many people, including his relatives, uh, the extortion of money uh, from those relatives alleged to have stolen that money in the first place was billed as an anti-corruption drive. Uh, is there any possible constellation inside Saudi Arabia that might actually uh, wake up one morning and decide uh, they don't want to be led by this man? I wish, I wish, George, uh, that I can say yes to that. But unfortunately, this regime and the MBS particularly is, um, is so brutal that um, any kind of sign, any whiff of any opposition to his regime is met with the utmost brutality. Um, you know, it's, it's something that um, might surprise many people. But the thing that really bugs MBS is not the fact that people are speaking of him having ordered the butchering of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. It's actually, this might actually be a, a badge of honor that he wears quite openly. The fact that really bugs him is that he and his ilk, they're all for show. And what really bothers him is that he can't summer in, in France or spend you know, time in, in London or go to Washington DC because governments whilst doing deals under the table and sometimes over the table with him, but they don't want to take pictures with him. They don't want to seem as though they are siding with someone who has such an ill reputation. And that to him is what really bothers him. The fact that he's known to have ordered the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, in fact, the, the imprisonment of thousands of his countrymen, including some of his family members, as you mentioned, is something which doesn't bother him, not to even a jot. That's not a problem to him. So unfortunately, as we sit today, and whilst I personally believe that such rules will come to an end and will come to a gruesome and not just a, a sort of peaceful walking into the sunset sort of end, but quite a gruesome end, I can't really put my finger on anything that I can mention and say, this is where it's going to come from. I hope there's something that I am unaware of. I just don't know of it. Dr. Anas Altakriti, CEO and founder of the Cordoba Foundation. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, should uh, countries, foreign entities be allowed to buy football clubs? Yes, 25, no, 63. C, depends which country. That's down four. Quite interesting, actually. Get voting on my YouTube, on my Telegram, and on my Twitter. Kenneth is in my hometown of Dundee on one of my favourite subjects, Scottish nationalism. Kenneth, go ahead. Yeah, I was listening to your discussion with John Curtis, who is, he's always an excellent guest. He's, he's uh, very, very knowledgeable. Yeah. Um, and it was the uh, issue that he raised about the fact that uh, Brexit meant that there would be a, um, a sl at least slight tip towards the independence vote. I know that you took issue with that. Yeah, because was, he made the point that there were swings and roundabouts. There were some people switched one way because of it, but more, he said, switched the other way because of it. But although this might be the point you're about to make, Kenneth, if the Nationalists had won in 2014, uh, Scotland would already have been many years outside the EU. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, well, I was strongly against... Uh, Call it. I don't like the word independence. Nationalism, which I think should be something that should be avoided unless it's, it's essential, unless you're being oppressed or unless perhaps you speak a different language or there's an obvious geographical division. But in, in Scotland and England, it makes absolute sense um, for um, us to, to stick together. It's, I mean, I remember being born in 1965. I remember at school being taught about Battle of Bannockburn and all that sort of stuff, and you quite enjoyed the you know, stick it up the English, send them homewards to think again, sort of flower of Scotland mentality. But somewhere in the back of even my childlike mind, I thought, I was thinking, isn't it great that that's all in the past? Isn't it great that we're all just one country in this tiny little island, as uh, Vladimir Putin once perhaps slightly disparagingly referred to it? I mean, it just makes absolute sense to join together. But the point I'm making is I'm kind of backing up John Curtis in that for once in my life, I am sorely tempted to to vote, or I might be, to vote for independence. I don't think I would, but I'm, because of the fact of Brexit, I'm someone who is a unionist and also thinks it makes sense to be in the European Union, albeit that I've got a lot of disagreements. The very fact that with it, with it, the very fact that we've got a, a potential democratic uh, institution, the European Union, which could act as a self-defence mechanism, as I see it, against the power of global multinationals who love small how's countries. That, how's that been going? I know, it, I, I agree. Well, <laughs> I, at the moment... The if European my auntie Union had is, balls, she'd be my uncle, David, uh, Kenneth. Well, I mean, the thing is, it, it is a democratic institution. People how is it democratic? Be, In what way is it democratic? We each get one vote. Our vote at the moment is... Can, well, sorry. But we I, don't each out, get, we don't get one vote. What are you talking about? Nobody elects the people that run the European Union. The European Parliament, well, if it's that you're referring to, is no, no. A, a useless, toothless, rubber-stamp assembly. It has no, no power I mean, I mean, at all. No, I mean the member states. Ultimately, the member states can decide how the institutions change. And we, well, we did have our vote through David Cameron. Or yeah, one country out minutes. of uh, 28. True, What's that, democratic that about that? That could be said about any polity. That could be said well, about, for instance, yeah. London might say... Well, Mal Malta having the Britain. same vote as us is democratic. Well, I, I agree with you about the, the, the way... But that, in, the, in a way, you might say that that's almost... Uh, countries like Germany and Britain are almost giving up their, their, their power. Well, well quite. Germany, we did Britain. give up our power. We, we gave yep. up our power and we gave up a lot of our money. We were, net, we were net contributors to the European Union from day one until the yeah. last day. 
uh, whilst uh, most of the countries in the European Union are net beneficiaries of it. To me, that was, that was incredibly enlightened. As a socialist, I like to see these, uh, us help other countries um, get up to the, to the standards of the living standards. Have you, have of, you seen how benefits? some of these countries uh, are run and the purposes for which they're run and who runs them? You're talking as if uh, you were uh, like uh, St. Vincent de Paul uh, distributing alms to the poor masses well. of Europe. You were giving money to rotten European governments. Yeah, some of them, I would disagree with, but remember, they are democratically elected as well. And the, the European Union, it's wrong to say that the European Union couldn't have the member states. You're making saying that, well, okay, Moldova gets the same vote as Germany. True. But the point is, we each, just like constituencies within the UK Parliament, you can say the same about Dundee constituency. Oh, we can't change the government. Of course we can, as, as the people in Dundee West, as I live in. But... As soon as the point is, the difficulty is when you live together in large groups in society, you can't always get your own way. No. And the, the, the European institutions were a good idea. Thatcher realised that. That's why she turned against it. As soon as they started to do things... Well, like how has it been for us? Right. Kenneth, we were in it until very recently uh, for more than 40 years. How did it work out? Yeah. Did, did we do well, well under it or did we not? The, 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 my main, I don't think we did badly. Uh, as in How the can you say that, Kenneth, when we went in? I'm older than you. When we went in, we had everything. We had a coal industry, a steel industry, a shipbuilding industry. We were the railway workshop, workshop uh, of the world. We had a motor car industry, a truck industry, a motorbike industry. We were an industrial powerhouse yeah. when we went in. How were we when we came out? It was well. These these are, I think, the more due to the neoliberal uh, policies that uh, Mrs. Thatcher um, and remember Dennis Healy at the time. Saying, so membership of the European, but that, so membership of the European Union did not protect us at all. No, true, because most of the countries in the European Union adopted or are fairly right-wing countries, and that's just something. I mean, I've, I've hated it all my life. The fact that. Um, you know, we have a conservative government, and that's one of the reasons. If you listen to Nicola Sturgeon, she's making the same argument you're making about the European Union. She, we are dictated to by by the United Kingdom. Except, by, except in, a, in this case, we are, and we lost from it. We lost wages, conditions, standards through the so-called free movement of actual drafting of cheap East European labour, which came here well, in their East millions and, and bust the, the labour market. Surely you can see that. Well, I think that's more to do with the destruction of the trade unions. Well, you keep saying it's you've always got a if only my auntie had balls uh, argument. True, but the, point is, the, the, the point is, Kenneth, that's what happened. Of course, it could have been something. No, but you said it was because of neoliberals, because of the lack of trade unions. But these are two realities. True, true. But the same, exactly the same argument that you're making no. against the EU. And I, and I used to be convinced. I'm a big, was a massive fan of Tony Benn. 
Um, but the only thing with hindsight... Where that did you lose the faith then? Where did you lose the faith in that? I didn't lose the faith. I just changed my mind on the European Union because I see it as a potential... I mean, it's not there at the moment. I totally agree with you. A potential bulwark. And that's why the right, right wing hate it. That's why Donald Trump hates it because he realises... When you say the right wing hate it, the right wing run it. it. Well, did you well, see? I mean, did you say, see the referendum, led I mean, by led by David Cameron, George yeah. Osborne, the CBI, yeah. uh, the uh, John Major, Tony yeah. Blair, Gordon yeah. Brown? The right wing yeah. love it. And I know uh, you've got you've got a good point there, but but I, I think it's potentially it's got the potential. I agree with Vanis, uh, sorry, Yanis Varoufakis on this. It, it's not my auntie could thing. potentially be my yeah. uncle if only she grew a pair of balls. Kenneth, same thing this is balls that jobs. you are talking. But let me take you back to your original point. First of all, if Scotland ever got the chance again to vote, and that's a moot point, if they voted to break up this small island of ours. Yeah. What guarantee have you got that that independent Scotland would be allowed into the EU? And perhaps more importantly, how could that independent Scotland, without a currency, without a bank, conceivably comply with the convergence terms required of all new members to have a deficit of 3% or less, when our deficit is almost five times that. That's why, that's why I don't think it makes sense to leave the, U, the UK. Uh, uh, with um, you know, reluctance, I probably would stay in the UK. But the point I'm making is exactly the same argument that you're making against staying in the EU is made by the Scottish nationalists. Well, saying, well, well, why am I making it then? Why, why was Mr. Ben making it? Why was Bob Crow making it? Why was Arthur Scargill making it? Why was Michael McGahey making it? Why was the Morning Star making it? Why was the British Communist Party making it? Why were we all doing that? Are we idiots, Kenneth? No, 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 no. I think it's because you saw that the rules of the European Union, especially things like supporting your own in industry, and I've got, I, I disagree with those, um, did Oh, this is another thing. Another, another thing. If only they didn't have these rules uh, no, precluding public... Uh, that's not... It's in the constitution of the organisation. A constitution that cannot be changed. Anyway, no, it can. The EU constitution was changed many times. That's no, why. it, it That's cannot why be changed is. except by the agreement of the very people who put it there in the first place. It cannot be changed except by a unanimous decision of, in this case, 28 countries would have to simultaneously want to abolish neoliberal capitalism, all of them, at once. I keep well, telling you, Kenneth, if my auntie had a pair of balls like that, well, she sure would be uh, my well, uncle. Well, it's been wonderful disagreeing with you, but I need to hear from Dave in Keredigion. Keredigion, forgive me, Dave. Keredigion. Thank you. Easy for you to say. 
<laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, an import myself, so it's not necessarily all that easy. Okay. But could I just say about the last conversation that I, I do marvel that these these remainers keep coming out of the jungle like yeah. lost like, Japanese like soldiers, Japanese soldiers the on the, the island. Still making the same arguments. <laughs> exactly. But even, even on top of that, when they tell you that if you live in a large group of people, you don't always get your own way. <laughs> Is, is, is marvellous. And he sounded like a young man as well. He's, he's the youngest of these, these Japanese soldiers. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry. He should start by listening to himself harder. <laughs> Good. Okay. Go on, Dave. Um, before I actually make the point, I just want to say I've, I've become a regular uh, watcher on YouTube over Thank the you. last couple of months. Thank you. Probably something to do with the fact that I've got more time now that my Labour Party membership has lapsed. Aha. Excellent. Good decision. <laughs> you left actually, before they kicked you out. I've been trying to get them to kick me out, but I I'm not important enough to notice. <laughs> I get, <laughs> guess not strategic in some way. Yeah. Uh, Make uh, your point now, quickly then, Dave. Yes, all right. Um, about the football, uh, you probably know this. There's a set of rules that is supposed to stop people spending too much on football clubs. I think they're called financial fair play or something like that. Ha ha, yes. Probably, probably stands for, don't make it too bleeding obvious if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I, I was wondering whether you would like to get someone on who, who would explain to, because I'm not an expert, uh, who would explain to you how the financial... Uh, fair, fair play, play regulations were going to be applied to Newcastle in the future and whether they would in fact survive. You could maybe do a poll. I'll tell you what, we will do that, Dave, uh, because, uh, look, I wish Newcastle United nothing but happiness. I love the people of Newcastle. I even like the team. I even like the team they've got now, never mind the team that they are going to have. It's not their fault. They were led by a guy who let them down so badly and for so many years. Uh, but the reality is uh, the Saudis have now got their hands on the club and everything is about to change. Hey you, do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet a question to George or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Hosted by one of the world's greatest orators. The mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. Are we heading to war with China, yes or no? It may very well turn out that that's not a question uh, that we ourselves will answer. The Chinese might answer it for us. In the Global Times this very day, it was suggested that now that it is admitted, revealed and admitted that the United States has stationed its war personnel on the island uh, of Taiwan, uh, that the Chinese may have to preemptively attack and destroy 
American military assets on Chinese soil because Taiwan is Chinese soil. And it's not just China that thinks that. Taiwan also thinks that. The United Nations also thinks that. International law also thinks that. So uh, ponder this. Uh, imagine if uh, the people of the United States woke up to discover uh, that in support of secessionist forces, say in California, the Chinese military had moved in overnight and were now supplying and setting up weapons systems and training the Californian secessionists. You've only got to put it that way to even begin to uh, realize exactly what the response in the United States would be. But somehow, through American exceptionalism, that is seen differently. So China might attack the illegal American military assets in Taiwan. In any case, uh, the United States gunboats are in the South China Sea, the clue being in the name, uh, with two pedalos alongside uh, belonging to Britain and to Australia. Uh, the Chinese Navy might sink them. Uh, the point being that we should not imagine that we can continue to up the ante more and more and more and more against China without China responding. If I was running China, call me hot-headed, I'd already have responded. Let's cross the Atlantic and talk to the finest independent political commentator of them all, Garland Nixon, who joins us again on the mother of all talk shows. Always a pleasure to see you. Let's start with uh, what's happening uh, in China, Garland. Um, I was on RT America in the week when this story broke. Uh, Farhan, our colleague, said that she'd known this for about a year. I had not known it. It came as a great shock to me. It struck me as a kind of Cuban missile crisis moment. And from what I can see of Chinese uh, responses, they're treating it that way. It's a serious juncture, isn't it? It is. I'll tell you something interesting also about this, and that is how the revelation came about at a time when Joe Biden is his confused um, uh, uh, China, uh, policy uh, towards China seemed to be trying to pull back a little bit when uh, Jake Sullivan was meeting with uh, the Chinese representative. And it seemed as though that the uh, the Biden administration wanted to kind of uh, calm things down a bit a bit. This came out in the Wall Street Journal from anonymous officials. And there are many security experts here who believe that this represents the, um, the divide in the neocon establishment and that there were those who saw Joe Biden's moves as capitulation and basically did this to throw a monkey wrench in it. I would suspect the Chinese, in the same way, you know, Vladimir Putin always says, you know, nothing moved has, or has basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, that nothing happens in Ukraine without him knowing it. I would imagine that nothing happens in Taiwan without the Chinese leadership know, knowing it. I would suspect that they already knew those troops were there. I would be shocked if they didn't. But the revelation coming out in the Wall Street Journal, it is suspected, is um, reveals moves that are happening uh, within the neocon establishment. As you know, Garland, uh, face and saving it, keeping it, 
is uh, it's something for everybody, but for Chinese people in particular, it is a very pronounced characteristic of theirs. They might have known or believed, suspected that these American forces were on Taiwan, uh, but for the world to be told it uh, by the Wall Street Journal uh, represents uh, a, a gigantic loss of face for China. And it may be that that has what is what has made this now a very acute matter indeed. Yes, and it also represents something, and that is the U.S. is extremely reckless towards China, and our um, leadership, and I use that word guardedly, um, does not recognize the importance of red lines. And when it comes to China, I suspect they're going to continue crossing red lines. I think, um, you know, they're they're not being responsible for another reason, and that is, you know, most again, most security experts, when they evaluate uh, and war game what would happen if the U.S. attempted to uh, were to, you know, be engaged in, in kinetic warfare with China, the odds are overwhelming that the U.S. would lose. And the fear is that the U.S. would lose, they would retaliate with some form of a nuclear um, confrontation, and that would certainly devolve into the end of all of us. So um, it, again, it's showing that our leaders do not understand how to operate in a multipolar world. They're talking to China as though they're talking to Guatemala or some very small landlocked country that they can easily dominate, and that's not the case. Quite so. Uh, now, uh, President uh, Xi said uh, this week that it was a matter of national honor uh, for China to uh, reunify its whole territory. As I said earlier, there is no question that Taiwan is a part of its territory. This is accepted in Taiwan as well as in China and indeed in all legal fora in the world. Uh, Taiwan is not a separate country. Uh, and this kind of recklessness could lead to uh, China taking back Taiwan by force. Now, I saw a very dismaying opinion poll today online, uh, admittedly from CNN, so not the, the most uh, auspicious of sources, but it showed that a majority of Americans would be ready to go to war to defend uh, what they called the independence of Taiwan. A couple of things involved, and that is, again, it's a CNN poll. I don't know how much I trust it. But the other part of it is this, that the um, the mainstream media has been so taken over by the intelligence community, by the Pentagon, that it doesn't surprise me because people only hear one side of the story, and that's the neocon argument. Additionally, Americans, in hearing that, um, have no clue the actual, um, you know, the, 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 the possible outcome of this. Americans have been watching, you know, uh, uh, smart bombs dropping in Iraq in 1991, or they've been watching the U.S. military go up against smaller countries, and they don't really understand um, the level of warfare they're talking about, about not to mention um, the fact that a, uh, a war, going to war with your number one trade partner mm. would end our economy in a way that would make the 1929 crash look like, uh, you know, the heyday of American uh, economic a very good point, Garland. You know, if China decided tonight, and heaven knows why they don't, uh, that they would no longer accept dollars in payment uh, for uh, goods and services they're selling overseas, that they would prefer it in euros, thank you very much, or prefer it in some other currency, this itself would be totally devastating uh, to the American 
financial system and the stranglehold that the U.S. has over that financial system, wouldn't it? Well, yes, and you bring up a good point because the U.S. is thinking uh, only of you know its ability to have military dominance, which even now it doesn't have military dominance in that area. But additionally, China has a lot of cards that it could play. China holds a trillion and a half dollars in the U.S. debt, and as you said, as you as you mentioned or alluded to, it is the world's industrial engine. They could make moves if China determines, and and it, and and think about this: it wouldn't be a bad move for China when they look at the alternatives. If the alternative is kinetic warfare with the United States, they may determine that they're willing to take an economic hit rather than a military hit in, to take the United States out. And then they could make economic moves. They could stop shipping things to us. They could close down some of our major technical um, firms that are, the, excuse me, all of our major technology firms who, who are kind of based out of their, um, as far as their hardware. So if, if China determines that kinetic warfare is in order, they may just decide to use all other means to devastate the U.S. economy and, and just decide they'll take a hit along with us um, to, to wake the United States up. Now, Garland, you talked about uh, your leadership. Um, we'll not dwell on, uh, on Joe Biden. It's, uh, it's a sorry sight. Uh, but I watched Kamala Harris in the week uh, talking to some school kids. And I've got to tell you, I wondered what she was on. She seemed high to me, spaced out. She was talking about space. Maybe she was just getting carried away. But I, I, I got to thinking that woman's finger might be on the trigger very soon. Well, I don't. Well, it may be on the on the trigger for for a bit, but I can't see her having a lot of luck in 2024. Um, so far, Joe Biden seems to be holding out. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. But one thing is obvious in watching that as a person who's done a lot of television, not saying that I'm good or bad at it, but I've done a lot. Camera, uh, Kamala Harris is extremely uncomfortable in front of the camera. She has very, very poor political skills and very poor skills in front of the camera. She looked like a deer in the headlights. She started meandering and wandering around with her discussion and it turned into a rather embarrassing word salad. So I cannot see uh, uh. Kamala Harris as a viable presidential candidate, as sad as, the, as, as, as she looks when she's in front of a camera and just totally lost. Uh, it was just a, a an embarrassing ramble. I had to put, you know, cover my eyes and put my head down to watch her. <laughs> yes. Well, I watched it twice for that reason uh, because I couldn't quite believe uh, that it was Real, I love that phrase, word salad. That's exactly what it was. And boy, what a salad. Uh, now, speaking of 2024, is it true that Donald Trump has now raised more than $100 million and he hasn't even declared yet? Yes. He, oh, Donald Trump will raise plenty of money, but that's the least of their problems with Donald Trump. If you remember, he won in 2016 and Hillary Clinton outspent him two to one. So Donald Trump had a rally in Iowa, um, which is a state that used to be reliably blue, but he won it in both 2016, I think by nine points in 2016 and eight points in 2020. Um, he has his highest uh, approval rating ever in Iowa at 53%. So he went right to the state where um, he's getting a lot of love. The thing I'm keeping an eye on, this is what I'm keeping an eye on when it comes to Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis and his relationship with Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is very, very popular in the Republican um, electorate. Um, Ron, he's popular in Florida, and that's a very important state. So he could give he could provide uh, that 
uh, th those electoral votes out of Florida for Donald Trump. They seem to have an amicable relationship. And I can see a Trump DeSantis ticket in 2024 against uh, Harris and whoever Pete Buttigieg is, who they'd likely throw in with her, I would think. And um, uh, and or, of course, Biden, Kamala. And I see Trump and DeSantis winning that save for and let's not forget this. Save for the Biden team has the national security state and the media, but I repeat myself, on his side, and they will do everything they can to ensure that uh, democracy does not reign, regardless of how the people vote. Well, they tried that, of course, in 2016, and it didn't work. And they spent four years trying to destroy Trump's presidency, and he got more votes in 2020 than he got in 2016. So. It's not that they can fix everything, Garland. Yeah, uh, no, it's not. But they'll certainly do everything they can. And, you know, when you look at what's happening in China and when you read, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, it is clear that the national security state sees Donald Trump and the MAGA movement as a hindrance, to say the least, against their, pol their the, the, the empire's policies, the empire's move to realign to a, an Anglo-Saxon English speaking only empire with the UK and the British and uh, and uh, and the US. So I think the national security state goes code red when they when they have any thoughts of Donald Trump winning in 2024. And they also probably understand that Donald Trump recognizes that he made some mistakes in not moving to pull out of various countries and pull out of various conflicts early enough. And that if he were to get back in, he'd be on the move doing that very soon. And I'm no Trump fan, but that's just my evaluation. Garland Nixon, it's always worth hearing your evaluation. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Are we Much heading to war to with China? Yes, 37%. No, 63%. Although on YouTube, it's 49 yes, 51 no. It's no longer out of the question. I'm joined uh, by the irascible, the spontaneous genius that is young James Giles. James. Very nice to see you again. Uh, I'm glad that we can be in the studio rather than uh, remotely. There's so much going on and not much time to deal with it. But let's, uh, let's deal with something that I take a counterintuitive view about. I see a lot of people attacking Boris Johnson for going on holiday for a week in Marbella. If I could get a flight tonight and go to Marbella, I'd be there. <laughs> What's wrong with the prime minister after the, the difficulty he's had in this past 12 months going on holiday? Discuss. Well, look, Boris Johnson hasn't been on holiday now for over 18 months. In that time, he has steered the country through a global pandemic. Uh, he's had not a sure about the steering, but well, yeah, he's, he's had to he's, try. He's tried. He's yeah, well, not, he's tried a fair amount. Yes, he's had a baby. He's got married. There's a second baby on the way. He's almost died of coronavirus. Let us not forget. And so a holiday's only fair. And his mother died last week. Well, indeed. So a holiday's only fair. But there are a good swathe of people who, no matter what Boris Johnson does, what he says, it will never be good enough. I mean, I think it's only fair that he takes a break now. Well, you probably want your uh, prime minister, your top ministers, uh, not to be uh, on the point of exhaustion. Uh, you probably want them to be refreshed by a week's holiday. 
Well, you would think so. Parliament's on holiday. I was going to say, it's party conference season. So Parliament's not sitting. There are no votes. There are no debates. You know, the UUP are currently having their party conference for what it's worth. And Parliament will resume again in a few weeks' time. And by mm. which point he'll be back from the Costa del Sol and he'll be back ready to provide some sort of leadership to yeah, the country. Yeah, to create some more uh, mayhem. Um, now, the Tory government appears rather divided. I saw uh, an exchange on the news today that I have, I have literally, in uh, more than 50 years in politics, I've never seen anything like it before. Uh, the, the business secretary, Quasi, how do you say his second name? Quasi Quarteng. Yeah, yeah. Quasi uh said, full of praise he was, for uh, Rishi Sunak, who he said was uh, deeply involved with him in a lot of discussions about how we can handle this energy crisis and so on. Uh, and then Rishi Sunak's people immediately briefed the media to call the cabinet colleague a liar. And moreover, to say it's not the first time he's made these kind of things up. Well, it was deeply embarrassing for the government that midway through a media round, you had uh, the government uh, mixing uh, messages there, Quasi, of course, having to change and say, well, I speak to the Treasury all the time. I've not asked Rishi anything specific about the energy crisis and support for business, but I'm always talking to Rishi, which, you know, is quite an embarrassing climb down, having just been on Sky previously saying, I'm speaking to Rishi, you know, he's backing business, I'm backing business. But it's almost, it's symbolic of the Tory government for a start. As we discussed the other week, Boris Johnson promoting loyalty over competence. But it's also a case of, well, the boss is away, the minions just, you know, taking over the asylum, running riot, mm. causing havoc. Very interesting. Now, what about Special K? Uh, let's explain this to those that aren't uh, following as closely as we are. Um, Keir Starmer claimed, uh, twice it turns out, uh, so it wasn't just a, a, a brain freeze, he did it twice, claimed that he had been nicknamed, he was on a visit to the Kellogg's factory, which of course makes, amongst other products, special K cereal. Uh, he said he had been nicknamed special K all of his life, which turns out to be an untruth. Well, it does. It, it turns out to be complete bull. Um, not only has he never been called special K, be it the cereal special K, or as he's said twice, K for Kia, um, you know, that never <laughs> happened. And so, you know, you can understand perhaps caught on the spot at the factory, you might want to make a joke about Special K if your name's Kia, but, you know, let us not forget, you know, some of our younger viewers, listeners here, you know, might also have a different meaning of the term Special K. Oh, so, really? Tell well, me. It is a slang term for uh, ketamine, which is a drug which, you know, makes you a little bit woozy and so you know perhaps oh on the benches when Keir Starmer is there you know a little bit comatose not providing a robust opposition then you know maybe he has had a bit of special K who knows <laughs> I never knew that uh, I'm obviously not in the young category that is complete news to me well that makes it even more embarrassing well it does it really does Keir Starmer spoke for 90 minutes at the Labour conference and his approval ratings have not moved upwards by one scintilla. What does that tell you? 
Well, I think it's a great concern. If you look at the polling after Boris and Keir's speeches from focus groups that were made and paid, in fact, to sit and watch both. These are politically representative focus groups. More people actually agreed with what Keir Starmer had to say than what Boris Johnson had to say, but it's all in the presentation. It's that that will get you over the line. And Keir Starmer has just reinforced the public persona of someone who's boring, failed to challenge uh, the government, and not being a strong leader, which at the moment, I think more than for a long time, the country is crying out for. And if you contrast that to Boris Johnson, who has had a pretty turbulent 18 months since the election into yeah, government, yeah, yeah. you know, with completely haphazard incompetent ministers, he's still able to go up there, give it the bar, give it the, the bluster. And, you know, the Tory faithful lap it up and the public see him as a, as a bit of a character still, which is how he won the mayoralty, it's how he's become Prime Minister. And until Labour fully understand themselves what they stand for, where they're going, what they want to do, we're going to be stuck with the Tories in power without a strong opposition. Now, we uh, had fun with the appointment of Nadine Dorries. You'll remember you stumbled upon uh, her, uh, the cam what we'll call the camel toe yes. interview, uh, which we didn't intend no. any disrespect, but which has taken wings and flown uh, across the world. Um, she is now in charge of what happens to the BBC. And she made a speech which uh, I must say I agreed with every word of, in which she demolished the BBC. She demolished their, uh, the extent to which they are completely contemptuous of the great mass of the British people. Uh, you know that old phrase, PLU, people like us? The BBC speaks to people like them. Mm. But the problem is, it's the rest of us that are paying for it, at least up till now. I get a feeling that Nadine Doris is out to get the BBC. Well, I think she is. And, you know, it's really the dying days for the BBC. You know, they've got the gall to be making a documentary about Jimmy Savile, which Unbelievable. I really hardly believe takes that. the biscuit. They're um, going to make a documentary about one of their flagship presenters for decades who was on their premises and on their dime committing horrific sexual crimes against, uh, I don't want to go into details, but no. living and dead people. Yes, quite. Uh, this man, uh, you would have thought the last thing in the world the BBC would want to do would be to bring all that up again. Well, absolutely. But I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, some in the BBC, I think, do expect this to be their... Uh, end of an era. The, you know, this is a swan song for them. It's the end. They know the, the gig is up, their days are numbered. And so, you know, perhaps they are embarking on these rather odd projects because they know that Nadine Dorries and the Tory government have it in for them. And, and why wouldn't they, frankly? You know, mm. everybody in Britain that watches TV has to pay a ghastly sum to a corporation that fewer and fewer people are actually watching and paying attention to. It seems grossly unfair. And I'm all in favour of defunding the BBC, either moving it over to an ad-supported model or making it Netflix-style. You know, there are people in the country who want to watch the BBC's output. I'm not one of them, but I'm sure there are people out there, and good luck to them. But don't make me pay for, you know, watching, uh, not watching content. It's ridiculous. Let's hear from uh, uh, Phil, who's in Bristol. Go ahead, Phil. 
Um, yes, hi, George. Uh, thank you very much for your show. Welcome. Um, yes, I want to talk about how uh, the CV-19, the COVID-19 story, that's, that's kind of filtering out there, but really hasn't made much um, of an impact. So now we're finding out that CV-19 was a artificially human-made virus. And this is coming out now in, in the Daily Telegraph, it's in the, in the Times, that, that was made in the Wuhan lab with funds from the U.S. and China. Have you been following this story, George? I have. Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, established as fact yet, but it's disturbing. Uh, the thing turns on the fact that COVID-19 is not comparable to any other coronavirus or any other naturally occurring virus, uh, that it was uh, being uh, worked on by American scientists and Chinese scientists with a view to developing an immunity uh, from it. It's deep, it's complicated, it's not uh, established fact yet, Phil, but it's, mm. uh, it's food for a rather disturbing thought. Uh, well, right. Well, in 2020, I um, don't know if you've heard of Professor uh, Francis Boyle. He's an expert in uh, biowarfare. He's a professor of international law uh, at the University uh, of I, I know him well, yeah. He's not a scientist. He's a lawyer, yeah. No, he, he, that's right, but he, he, he specializes in, in uh, biowarfare. He wrote the, the, the uh, U.S. version of it uh, that was made, that was, uh, made into domestic law. Mm -hmm. um, and he said that uh, in 2020, he said that COVID-19 was made with gain of function. And he was laughed, he was laughed at. Mm. His, in, his YouTube interview was taken down. And this, to me, this is all an expression of, of you know, people who are laughed at. And, and, and then suddenly they find out, wow, well, maybe there's something to it. So, you know, I don't know if, if your viewers or you will, will know this expression, gain of function, but I think we need to talk about it. Uh, yeah, well, we'll, we will. Uh, of course, we're always ready to talk about COVID. What we're not ready to be is a platform for a dangerous crankism, because sometimes people uh, are described as uh, being uh, nutters because they are nutters. Uh, it's not the case that every conspiracy theorist is really onto a conspiracy. Uh, this one, I've granted you, uh, is uh, food for thought. The Chinese deny it. Uh, the Wuhan laboratory denies it. The World Health Organization has said uh, that this was not from a lab. Uh, we'll keep it under review, Phil. Uh, and we'll always be ready uh, to uh, look again at uh, previous positions that we've taken. Thanks uh, very much for the call. Jalau is in Manchester. Go ahead, Jalau. Hi, George. Hi. Um, George, you always say follow the money. Mm -hmm. Why is it that nobody is following all these senators and politicians being paid money by corporations, be, be it the military complex, be it uh, Amazon, Walmart, um, Asda, whoever, that pay um, lobbying money and contributions towards elections. Why is it that nobody investigates as to how they're paid, how these politicians hide the money, and why they're paid this money? It's easy to follow because every corporation has an account, has, does their accounts, mm. 
and they have to show where the money came in and where it went out. So why well, has nobody investigated? Most, most corporations are, are not donating heavily to the British political process. American, yes. Uh, but the, as James will tell you, as, a, uh, as already uh, an experienced election agent and campaign organiser, uh, the, the amount of money spent in British elections and allowed to be spent in British elections uh, is very small uh, by comparison to other countries, especially, of course, uh, to the United States. And by and large, corporations don't give significant sums of money to political parties. What the real corruption is, is the revolving door uh, where uh, retiring politicians and they retire at an ever younger age uh, go through that revolving door and end up on the boards of these corporations, some of whom have benefited mightily. Let me bring in James. James, your view on that? Well, I think you're absolutely right that corporations do take on retiring politicians, cabinet ministers, etc. And that's why the government introduced a register whereby for a period of five years after a cabinet minister steps down from their position, they have to OK any appointments that they take on. Take George Osborne as an example. I lost track of the number of jobs he took on after leaving Parliament, advisor to BlackRock, uh, rather famously editor of the Evening Standard for a period. I got as far as six jobs, and there's probably more, but I gave up counting after six. And, you know, these people earn a uh, fortune uh, after their time in office, and that is of concern, because obviously, if you're in a position of power, you know things from your time as, for instance, Secretary of State for Energy, um, and if you go on to advise an energy company, that could give them an unfair yes. advantage. And, and you may be making political decisions with an eye on uh, what is going to happen once you leave politics, rather than both eyes uh, on the uh, issue in hand. Uh, Jalal, go ahead. Last word to you. How would voters react if they found that people that they had voted for in the past, while they were in uh, the job that they were in, i.e. in politics, were earning so much money outside of politics but while they're not, in politics. They're not, I'm sorry to shoot your fox, but they're not. Uh, anything that you earn uh, when you're a member of parliament, you have to register it. And if you are found not to have registered it, you would be drummed out of parliament if it was a significant sum of money. So it, it's, it's actually, so it's actually not right what for, you're saying, uh, Jalal. It's either that or get paid half a million dollars for a painting. Who got paid half a million dollars for a painting? Peter, is it, was it not half, uh, uh, pictures? His pictures started at half a million dollars or something like that? Who? Who? Hunter Biden? Oh, you're talking about the United States. Uh, I, I was talking about Britain. Uh, in the United States, corruption with a capital C is right at the heart of the political uh, process. Thanks for the call, Jalal. Let's go to Miles in London. Go ahead, Miles. Uh, evening, George. Hi. Hi. Uh, George, the, the CIA plots that, uh, that Mike Pompeo uh, orchestrated or oversaw, uh, that's getting reasonable coverage. But uh, in my view, that's not really the legal Achilles heel uh, for the U.S. prosecution case. 
it's it's the Thordis and lied issue. It's the the key witness issue that lied, and there's documentary proof that he lied, and and he was referred to 22 times in the written verdict in January. So that's really the, the story that the press should be covering, not the sort of well, they're, but they're, they're not they're not covering either story. Uh, well, they're the, covering the, the CIA plots more than no, they are. No, that, well, I don't know where you've seen it. I haven't seen it anywhere except online. Uh, did uh, did the BBC cover it? I think not. No, no. Neither the um, BBC nor ITV nor Channel Four. I uh, didn't see no, it in any of the mainstream newspapers. Yeah, some of the American press covered it. Um, I, I would like to see his lawyers walk into the. Uh, the appeal hearing on the October 27th and just say, this is a mess. Stop it right here. Move, it, it uh, move for no dismissal, further. yeah, move for dismissal, yeah. Well, uh, obviously, uh, it's up to the lawyers, but that thought does occur to me, Miles. Are you coming to the protest on uh, October 27th uh, in I, London? I won't be, but I'll be covering it uh, on here and on television generally uh, very, very much. Miles, thanks for the call. Josh is in Cincinnati. Uh, in the United States, what's not to love? Hey, thanks Cincinnati. For my call. Go ahead, Josh. Hey, Cincinnati's great. Hope it you is. guys are good. Doing I good used over to know there. the mayor um, of it, a certain Jerry Springer. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes. <laughs> Anyhow, he took me he's to breakfast once. He took me to breakfast uh, in the run-up to the Iraq War. He was a big opponent mm -hmm. of the Iraq War, actually. Oh, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, it was a bad war. Uh, if there's a good one. Yeah. So I got a question about uh, Jerry Springer. I mean, not Jerry Springer, about Jeffrey <laughs> Epstein. Yeah. Got me there. Yeah. Um, here in the United States, it's just really hard to get information on it. Um, you'd think it would be like the biggest story in the world, I guess. Ostensibly, Israeli intelligence pouring out children. Um, the Jelaine Maxwell documents are sealed. Before they got sealed, they were saying an 11-year-old girl was being trafficked, and this is roped in people like Prince Andrew. And who knows how many U.S. politicians. Do you hear anything about this? And what's your opinion on it? Uh, first of all, uh, Prince Andrew is not accused of anything to do with an 11-year-old girl. We need to make that uh, clear. Uh, in fact, he's accused of having had sex with a woman of an age that would be legal in Britain. And that is one of the complications. Uh, of the Prince Andrew case, uh, the offence would have occurred in the United States when she was being trafficked, if she was, uh, for that purpose, that illicit and illegal uh, purpose. Uh, Epstein was clearly an intelligence uh, asset, if not an agent. I don't know why you want to bundle it off to the Israelis. He was almost certainly working for American intelligence, uh, as well as other intelligence services, uh, perhaps including the Israelis. Ehud Barak, former uh, military chief and former prime minister of Israel, was a close buddy of his and a frequent visitor to his uh, premises. Uh, Epstein had a black book in which almost everybody who was anybody in politics, in business, uh, was listed, and a very large number of them uh, were inexplicably drawn 
into his company and found it uh, very convenient and convivial uh, indeed. So we cover this story regularly, Josh. Uh, we've had uh, several guests uh, talk on it and we're not going to let it go, not least because of the Ghislaine Maxwell involvement. Thanks uh, very much uh, for your call. James, uh, it is funny how uh, some stories cross the Atlantic in a big way and some uh, don't. You know, if it had been, uh, I don't know, a Jerry Springer type thing, everybody in Britain would know about it. But the Epstein case, apart from us, isn't really widely known or discussed over here. Why? Well, it's a difficult one, really, isn't it? Because, of course, British media is much more heavily regulated than American media, at least on television and radio, which is Good point. still where the majority of our news output uh, comes from in Britain. In America, you can say what you want, uh, give or take. Uh, and Unless you're Donald Trump. Well, indeed, and then you get banned by Nick Clegg, of all people. <laughs> but, uh, the liberal. The liberal Nick Clegg, of course. But GB News is perhaps to a small extent bucking that trend. They argue that what they're offering is opinion rather than news. And the introduction of Talk TV next year, uh, Piers Morgan's uh, and Murdoch's new channel, in effect, will surely shake things up a little bit. And we might begin to see uh, an Americanization, if I can use, if, if, if that is a word, uh -huh. of uh, British well, it news. Well, it is funny because w the story we did last week uh, with uh, Professor Andrew Loney, uh, the author of many books on uh, Lord Mountbatten was easily our most viewed clip ever. Hundreds of thousands of people watched it. So there is an audience mm. for diving deep into the things that the other media will not touch. And I think we're, uh, we're filling that uh, bill. Absolutely. Oh, Norma in Bristol on the line. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Not much time. Um... I'm not, very, I'm not really clever enough to understand all these intricacies of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, but it was easier to get to grips with the apartheid in South Africa. But what I want to know is that the situation in Israel regarding Palestinians is so wrong, and it's been like it for years. And why don't the Western nations cry out for freedom for the Palestinians? Well, they didn't, they didn't cry out for freedom for the South Africans either. Well, they no, no, but the, the Western, Well, eventually, in the last uh, 24 months or so, uh, but uh, I, even in my lifetime in Parliament, it was uh, routine to hear uh, the Prime Minister describe Nelson Mandela himself oh, no. as a, yeah. a terrorist. So Britain and the United States clung to uh, their support for the apartheid state in South Africa for a very, very long time. Uh, and in the case of the Palestinians, it is complicated further by uh, the geopolitical interest uh, that Western countries have in Israel, as they did with apartheid South Africa, but the Holocaust in which six million Jewish people were systematically annihilated. And if Hitler hadn't been stopped, uh, all of the Jews in Europe would have been annihilated. Make this story much more difficult for politicians, journalists and the rest to talk about. Uh, and so uh, it's too late in the day to have a proper discussion uh, on it.
But thanks, Norma. We always need to hear your voice. Are we heading to war with China? Well, 62% of you say no. I hope you're right. See you next week. The podcast had another incredible week with a rise of 14% in total downloads. That's on top of last week's 10% increase, making us not only one of the fastest growing political programs on screens and on radio, but now in podcasts too. We're now one of the top political podcasts, not just in the UK, but also in Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Thailand, Taiwan, and believe it or not, the UAE. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy most. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.